God in heaven, as we turn our attention now to your holy word, Father, we readily acknowledge that I am unworthy of it. God, in your name I pray, God, that you are worthy, that your word is sufficient. So God, we pray, we ask, as humbly as we know how, God, that your word would convict us, would change our This morning, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to take it and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Once again, we will be in Hebrews. We are drawing near to the end of our series in Hebrews. We will be completing chapter 12 today. We will be completing Hebrews chapter 12 today. And so last Sunday, we read verses 1 through 4. We will pick up again this morning in verse 4. If you find your place in sacred scripture, if you are physically able, I would encourage you to please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As we look together, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. The word of the Lord says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be seen, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to immeasurable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the very beginning of chapter 12, what we looked at last week, we're told, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he begins, the author begins chapter 12 by referencing back to the cloud of witnesses, the hall of fame of people of faith in chapter 11. But as he progresses into Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to spend some time talking about discipline. We're going to spend some time talking about the unshakable kingdom of God, about repentance and regret. And all of this, though it may seem disjointed, is actually joined together and woven together intricately and beautifully. See, the discipline of the Lord goes hand in hand with the shaken kingdom referred to at the end of the passage. You see, God shifts us. We are shaken so that the things that are made will pass away and the unshakable, unshaken kingdom of God will remain. These items weave together as the author writes. As he begins, he, he says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We've talked about struggling against sin. We've talked about last week not shedding our blood, and then moving to this place of discipline, not growing weary in the midst of discipline. Now listen, my brother and my sister love to make fun of the fact that I got far fewer spankings than they did when I grew up. I mean, my parents were a little bit older, they had chilled out just a little bit, but I would just like to assure each and every one of you, I got plenty of spankings, okay? I was not a happy kid when I woke up, and I would get a spanking. Of course, to me... 
is I, I knew that the spanking would be quick and then it would be over and I could endure and it would be all right. Now, I can still vividly remember some of the worst spankings I got, but the worst ones to me were when all three of the methods of discipline would coalesce together, all right? So it starts with the spanking, all right? You get, you get really whipped and worn out. And then after that, you're deprived of your privileges, okay? So I, I, was, I had a Nintendo 64. Maybe you know that. Maybe you don't, all right? Maybe you are familiar with a Nintendo 64 and Mario Kart was your jam like me. Maybe you played Zelda. Maybe you didn't, all right? But that was my jam, okay? That was what I did. That was my life as a kid. I loved my Nintendo 64. So it was bad enough that I got a spanking. And then I had to go however long without my Nintendo 64 and any other privileges they added on. And then if, if it was the trifecta, the third one, my dad would go to leave the room, and as he walked away, he'd stop in the doorway, look back, and he'd say, Son, you're very disappointed. Then walk out. And sometimes I thought he wasn't even disappointed. He just knew how bad that would crush my soul. And so he, he's on his way out, and he's like, You know what? I'm going to add it. I'm just going to add the icing on top of the cake, and I'm going to turn around, and I'm just going to tell him how disappointed I am. And y'all, as a kid, it broke me. As a teenager, it broke me. When my parents were disappointed in me, I had completely and utterly let them down. It tore me to shreds. My dad was always very good, though, about coming back after discipline. You know, and like I, I still give this speech to my kids now after they get a spanking. He'd get down on my level, and he'd be like, Son, I know that the only reason I spank you is because I love you. But this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. I want you to know if I didn't love you, son, I, I wouldn't spank you. And of course, everybody in here who's heard that speech went, yeah, right, whatever. My dad gave me those speeches all the time. I'd get in trouble and he'd come back and tell me. There's one that I remember more than anything else. And it's I, I got in a car with a friend of mine and we started the car. And I was probably nine. All right? And this was, this was the stick shift, so we, we, were, we were rolling down the, my friend's driveway. Andy Patterson. Me and Andy Patterson, we were just in this pickup truck. We're rolling down the driveway. And fortunately, he figured out how to stop the, the truck. And then we, we panicked and got out. And then the truck started rolling some more about the time that Andy's dad had come out. And he jumped in the truck and stopped it before it got in the road. Could have been really bad. Really, really bad. And I, I can still in my mind smell what the room smelled like when my dad whipped me for that. Okay, like I, every aspect of that spanking is burned into my brain because he said, if you ever do that again, not only if, if you survive it first off, but if you survive that, I will kill you myself. I will end you. And don't doubt that I can do it. I will end you, son. Don't ever do it again. Your life was in danger. That's the first time that I really understood why my dad disciplined me. I was genuinely in danger of ending my own life. Had, had, it was a busy street. There was a big hill. People came flying down the hill. If we had backed out into the road, we really could have, have been killed. And my dad was fearful of that. And so the discipline came to stop me from being as stupid as I already was. And it clicked in my mind that dad really isn't doing this because he enjoys it. Dad really is doing this because he's trying to teach me. He's trying to help me to survive. And, and many of you probably had parents similar to that. That was the first time that it clicked in my mind. Thus, 
It is also true in Scripture that God disciplines those who are His children. This quote in in chapter 12 here is from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. The Lord disciplines us because He loves us. Church, there's a hard pill that we have to swallow. Sometimes in life, when hardships and difficulties and struggles and trials come our way, it's because God is specifically disciplining us. Now, sometimes we like to think that that's just not possible. God would never let anything bad happen to us. He loves us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So why would God ever allow or cause something bad to happen to us out of discipline? That's just not in God's nature. But I assure you what we're taught in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning is it impacts you. Because God loves us, if we truly are believers, He will discipline us. There are numerous examples throughout Scripture. Look at the life of King David. King David was not stripped of the throne. King David was not in a place where he lost all that he had, but his entire house was thrown into turmoil because God stopped protecting and preventing certain things from happening to King David. After his sin, there was punishment. And so sometimes when we're in the midst of a trial, when we're in the midst of a struggle, we have to stop and honestly ask ourselves, what am I doing that's out of sync with the Lord's will? It is possible that the Lord could be disciplining me or disciplining you, and we've brought whatever hardship upon ourselves from our sin. You cannot escape the consequences of our sin in this life. If you have an affair outside of your marriage and it is discovered, it will forever alter your marriage if you stay together. You often know that way better than I know myself. Some of you have walked through that. Some of you have parents who have walked through that. There are consequences to our sin. And some of those consequences involve discipline from the Lord. But not always. You remember the story of Job. Job faces all of these trials and all of these troubles and all of these tribulations. And everyone in Job's life says, repent of whatever sin you have done. And Job says, there is not a specific sin that I have committed that has brought this calamity upon me. There is not. And all of his friends stand around him and say, Job, you need to repent and beg God for forgiveness. I don't know what you've done to God, but if you live right, God blesses you. When you live wrong, God curses you. So Job, you must have lived wrong because you are cursed right now, brother. You lost seven kids. You lost all your property, all your possessions, and there's boils all over your skin that you're scratching with the pot pieces and shards that have broken off. Buddy, you are cursed. You're the epitome of curse right now. You need to repent and beg God for forgiveness. At the end of the book of Job, when God finally responds to Job and to his friends, God tells his friends, you need to ask Job to pray for you. Because in the midst of all of this, Job has spoken well of me. That's God speaking to Job's friends. And you have not. The friends 
were wrong. It is not always as simple as A plus B equals C. Sometimes we experience discipline from the Lord. Other times we face trials because we live in a sinful and fallen and cursed world among sinful and fallen and cursed people that cause accidents and sinful things and intentional things to happen to us that is not discipline from God. But sometimes, sometimes it is. To the extent that if the Lord never disciplines you, you ought to be content. Because if you're never disciplined, you might be an illegitimate Your faith might not be valid or real. You might be faking it on the outside, and you have faked it for so long, you've convinced yourself that maybe I really do believe. But in your heart, you don't believe. You're not following the Lord. That is what we're talking about when he says that there is discipline that comes. And if the discipline does not come, then you might be illegitimate children. Because other places in Scripture reinforce to us that God disciplines and refines His own. Isaiah one twenty five. God is speaking to Israel and through the centuries to us as the church. He says, I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. You will be placed into the hottest of intense fires so that the impurities in the metal will float to the top and the Lord will scrape them off. But that is a painful process of discipline. In Malachi chapter 3, we, we studied this recently. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Notice that we said at the start, all of this chapter weaves together beautifully. These concepts and ideas of the Lord being a refiner and disciplining us by putting us into the heat of the fire is reinforced in the last verse of chapter 12. Our God is a consuming fire. It ties back to the principles of discipline. The Lord disciplines us because He wants us to be holy. And it's like when you're carving a sculpture. There are smooth places and rough places, and those places that are rough have to be smoothed out and chipped away. And that is not a fun process, but if it's not happening, I would be anxious in my soul. Why is the Lord never disciplined? Why is there never anything that the Lord is trying to do in my life to make me more like Him and more holy? Folks, this goes against everything that is popular in theology today. You know, it's popular in theology today for us to say that if God loves us and if we have a lot of faith, that we will be prosperous, that we will be wealthy, we will be healthy. If we have enough faith, we can claim anything. And it will happen. I don't care if it's cancer. I don't care if you're lame and can't walk. We can claim anything. And if we've got enough faith, it will happen. But if it doesn't happen, you must not have enough faith. If you don't have your own private jet, it's not the Lord's fault. It's your fault because you don't have enough faith. 
Folks, I would, I would offer to you that Scripture teaches us not just that that is wrong, that the complete opposite is true. Over and over in Scriptures, we are told that we will suffer for Christ's sake. That we will suffer just as He suffered. That we will experience trials and hardships and temptations and tribulations and struggles because our Lord and Savior faced those same things. And if they crucified Him, how much more so will they hate us? So if we go through life and there's never a bump in the road and everything is smooth and all of our pathways are straight, it should cause us to check our hearts. If we're too prosperous, if things are too easy, I'd be concerned in and of myself. I look at these people who are willing to give their lives all over the world and I think, maybe that's why things are easier for me because I'm sitting in an air-conditioned house with no worries and no paranoia that somebody's coming to kill me. Maybe I'm not in the center of God's will because I'm not being persecuted, because I'm not suffering enough. Folks, I know that that might sound absolutely crazy, but sometimes, it's not good to dwell on that, but sometimes it is important for us to think, how is God disciplining me in my life? Is God disciplining me in my life? If He is not, it should be a cause for concern. So then, he continues on and says, to struggle and strive to live at peace with everyone. Mark chapter 9 says the same thing. Romans chapter 12 and 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a common thread throughout Scripture to be a peacemaker. Not to be a peacekeeper. There's a big difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper just wants to appease everyone, just make everyone happy, just make everybody else satisfied to the lack of my own satisfaction. A peacemaker is one who establishes peace. Even if everybody's not happy, there may be peace. This is a command to us throughout all of Scripture. That as God disciplines us and we look more like Him, there will be more peace among us. And when discipline falls, it doesn't just fall on individuals. It can fall on entire assemblies, entire bodies of believers. Sometimes God allows those trials to force us together, to force us to make peace with one another. Because guys, if we can't get along, if we can't have peace, among the body of Christ in this building, how will anyone ever say, man, I I really want what they have? So God disciplines us that we might be peacemakers. Continues through and talks in verse 15 about holiness and about running from the root of bitterness. Sometimes God disciplines us and it creates bitterness in our hearts because of our own sinful perspective on things. Has anybody in this room ever struggled with bitterness? I've been bitter. Not only have I been bitter, I've been bitter at the Lord. I've been in that state of sinfulness. I can vividly remember, as well as I remember that spanking from my dad when I got into the car and started it on my own without an adult around, I remember specifically when I was most bitter with God. My very best friend in all of my life, my Jonathan David brother friend, My cousin, Josh, was diagnosed with cancer. And I was furious. 
I remember driving to Best Buy from McCullough. And I was going from McCullough to 280, and as I was driving, I held my steering wheel, and I, I couldn't grip it any tighter. I was trying to squeeze through the steering wheel and cut it in half. And I screamed at God, and I said, Why would you do this? Why not me? Give me the cancer, not him. Everybody loves him. He's popular. He's fun. Nobody hates Uncle Josh. Nobody hates Cousin Josh. Everybody loves Josh. Why would you give him cancer? Why does he have to face this trial? Let me face it for him. And it was weeks of bitterness towards God. I was wrong. I was sinful. But you know what? God could take it. God could handle it. He let me yell at him. He was calm. He responded by leading me to places in his word. He responded by showing me the bitterness, the root of bitterness that I had allowed to take root in my own heart. And I want you to know I spread that root. And I had to go back to people and say, listen, I am sorry that I've been so negative. The sound system is not that bad. Specifically in church. Specifically in church. I would sit through services miserable. That preacher was a terrible pastor. This sound system is awful. Why don't they do something about this? this I... I, I I even teach I had to go back to people and apologize because the bitterness in my heart quickly took root in everyone else's heart around me because it spreads like a plague. And if we are not peacemakers and fighting actively against the bitterness that can take place in our hearts, then it spreads like a fog in a cloud. This root of bitterness is, is in quotation marks in my Bible, and, and it's talking about a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is what happened with the people of Israel. They grumbled constantly against Moses because a root of bitterness had taken seed in their hearts. What does God do in response? If you go and you look in Deuteronomy 29 and follow that story, there is intense discipline from the Lord. I walked through discipline from God until the bitterness cleaned my heart. All of these things tie together. The last thing we're going to look at this morning, verses 16 and 17. Esau is deemed unholy. Do not be like Esau. Do not be unholy like Esau. And folks, I just want you to know that there is, there is a phrase that I have clung to as I struggle with predestination and election and, and free will and all of these things, I cling to this phrase that there will be no one who stands before the Lord, who stands before the gates of heaven and says, God, I wanted to be saved. I wanted to believe in you, but you would not let me. Folks, when you get to these verses, it's very difficult to make that mesh with what happened to Esau, right? Esau was deemed unholy. Afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. On an initial reading, that sounds a lot like Esau wanted to repent and wanted to believe in Christ, and wanted to be a believer, and wanted to be in the family like Jacob was. But he couldn't. He tried to repent, but he was not allowed. 
But our, our problem is we read it quickly and skim over it. This is, again, another explicit reference to what happens in Genesis chapter 25. Esau is unholy because he was so flippant with his birthright. The reason we are called sons is because the oldest son had the birthright. So, men, we have to be the bride of Christ. We've got to deal with that, okay? Women, you have to be sons of God because you want to be sons in this culture. You do. The son's got all the inheritance. The oldest son had the birthright. Esau thinks that is pointless and is willing to sell his birthright for a single meal. Then after that, Jacob deceives his father and receives the blessing. And the scene that is painted for us is that Esau comes in. And when Isaac realizes what has happened, Esau says, Father, bless me. Father, give me a blessing too. God, please, please, Father, you have to bless me. You didn't give it all to Jacob, did you? And Isaac says, Son, I, 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 gave, I gave the blessing to Jacob. You, you sold your, your birthright. See, Esau sought the blessing with tears. But he didn't really repent. He just regretted what he had done. Man, is that, is that not true of you and me? There's a difference between regret and repentance. I can sin and regret what I have done, but I may not repent of it. Listen to how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 8 through 10. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it at first, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, folks, we can be caught in the same pattern of sin over and over and over again, and we can regret that we are committing that sin. But if that regret never leads to repentance, there is no godly grief associated with it. We could be like Esau. Esau really liked the idea of repenting. He just didn't want to repent. You know what I mean? I really like the idea of being able to play the guitar, but I don't really want to practice the guitar. I just want to be able to pick one up and, and just like impress people with my skills. I want some kind of something from the Matrix, you know, where they plug that thing in the back of my head and they upload Kung Fu. You know, Keanu Reeves learned Kung Fu, and then they unplugged him and he went, I know Kung Fu. We like the idea of knowing something, of being familiar with something, but not going through the work that is required for it. We like the idea of being right with God, but we don't like the discipline that's necessary for that to happen. We regret our sin, but we don't regret it to the point that we repent and turn from it. Because that is our pattern, God will discipline us and create within us a godly grief that leads to repentance. We can't continue sinning the same way over and over again, never struggling against our sin, never working against our sin, never seeking to repent, and only regretting that we have sinned 
and think that it's acceptable to the Lord. See, God's calling us to be different from Esau. If we believe and seek to follow Jesus, God will continue to work in us. God will discipline us as we step too far out of line. God will burn away the dross in us. Because of this, God will stir within us more than just regret over our sin. God will stir within us a godly grief that draws us towards repentance. So if any of us in this place this morning are where we don't feel godly grief over our sin, that's cause for concern. If any of us are in a place this morning where we don't even feel regret over our sin, then we may be looking a lot more like Esau. We need to realize the severity of our sin in a way that not only drives us to our knees, but drives us towards repentance. You might be sitting there this morning and not even worried about your sin. Not even worried about looking more holy. Not even seeking for God to make you more holy. It's a cause for concern. If we belong to God, He will discipline us. And He will place within our heart a grief that leads us, not just to get on our knees and say, God, I'm sorry, but to fight, to struggle against our sin, to repent and turn to Him where He's welcoming us with open arms. And it is still possible. There is no one here to stand before the Lord and say, I wanted to be your father. I wanted to believe and you wouldn't let me. For all of us who seek repentance, God will grant us repentance. He tells us that in 2 Timothy. He will grant us the repentance. So this morning, folks, I, I wonder, is there anybody in this room that needs to seek repentance? That needs to come before the Lord and say, God, I need to feel grief over my sin. God, would you drive me towards repentance? Maybe you're here this morning and God is in the midst of disciplining you. Maybe you're in one of those seasons like when my cousin Josh had cancer. You're angry, you're bitter. Seek out the Lord and He will lift you up. Because why Hebrews chapter 12 is this, because our God is a consuming fire who will burn away our sin and offer blood that covers our sin that's far better than the blood shed by Esau. This morning, if you need to be covered once more, washed clean once more, drawn to repentance, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the truth that's found in it. God, help us to grieve over our sin. Help us not to just regret it, Lord, but to have a grief that pushes us towards repentance. Father, I pray that you would grant us repentance. God, that we would not be like Esau. We would not just realize the thought of repentance, but we would 
notice this has been a big difficult message to me. God, I pray in, in spite of in spite of the foolish preaching that your word will still work. God, we love you. Help us as we attempt to respond to your Holy Spirit in all of this. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Church, as you stand, as Jason begins.